Well, we find ourselves now in the fourth of a five-week Lenten series. And for those of you who haven't been with us, we have been focusing on the whole experience of hope in our lives. Can you think of anything more appropriate in these days? Frankly, it had never occurred to me that hope was an appropriate Lenten theme um, until Barbara Brown Taylor, my favorite Episcopalian, uh, opened my eyes to the fact that the whole call of repentance, so much a part of the Lenten season, uh, is really grounded in an implicit hopefulness. It would be crazy to ask people to turn around and go in a different direction and change their lives if we didn't believe the change was possible. Now, a couple of weeks ago, I spoke about hope in terms of the future. Um, in other words, what kind of help can we expect from God um, without setting ourselves up for disappointment? And I, I think that when we talk about hope, we often tend to think of the great not yet because hope uh, is grounded in the whole idea of possibility. But this morning, I want to talk about hope as it applies to another sector of our lives, namely how we process our memories, how we live with the past. Because one of the real enemies of hope, it seems to me, is to have such bad experiences back then that we are robbed of any sense that there can be better opportunities in the future. Sam Keane is a philosopher and writer. He was asked one day by a young person in their uh, church what it means to be human. And in his uh, overly intellectual style, Sam responded, well, we are polytemporal beings, which I imagine went over about as big in a youth group as a lead balloon. But what he meant was that we humans are connected really to three different segments of time. We have, of course, the gift of awareness, which connects us to the present. We have the gift of memory, which means that we still have access to things that happened way back when. But we also have these powers of anticipation and um, looking ahead. And the great trick, it seems to me, is to keep all three of these in their proper role to not let any of them contaminate the other. So memory, um, the way we remember the past is, first of all, uh, of course, a wonderful gift. I mean, sit with any child and remember with them the day that they were born and just watch their eyes light up. Sit with a group of World War II vets and ask them, where were you in the war? And listen to their stories and um, listen to the, to the pride and the sense of purpose that overflows. If you have ever uh, loved someone who has lost their memory, be it short or long term, you know how painful that can be. So memory is a wonderful gift. But it can take over completely. And um, when it does that, it can crush and limit our hopes for the future. In fact, I had a counseling professor back in seminary who was fond of saying, tell me how you remember and I will tell you who you are. Alice Miller, 
Swiss psychologist, wrote a little book. It was called Prisoners of Childhood. And her thesis is that all of us come out of childhood with two specific kinds of wounds. She says the first wound is that of grievance, because the reality is none of us were born to angels. Uh, none of us were born to people who did it absolutely perfectly. And some of them had wounds um, that kept them from being there for us. Or they had needs um, that they had to live out that were done at our experience. And so most of us, she says, have some scars, some grievances that we carry. But she goes on to say that we have not done our lives any more perfectly than did our parents. And so in addition to the wound of grievance, there is also the legacy of guilt. That is, we look back and we can remember things that we could have done differently or things that we should have done that we failed to do. None of us has done it any perfect, more perfectly than our parents. We all have skeletons in our closets. And so Miller says that unless we do some real work, spiritually and psychologically, those wounds can become um, like a dungeon for us that can turn us, first of all, into an untrusting person. Those wounds can also transform us into blame-oriented persons so that we don't take any responsibility for our own behavior. It is always somebody else's fault. And in case you haven't noticed, that is a significant problem in our society today. Cartoon I saw a while back uh, of a, a teacher who was breaking up a schoolyard fight. The good courages in our congregation would know about those kind of things. Anyway, this cocky little boy looks up at the teacher and says, it all started when he hit me back. Another cartoon of a child who brings home what is obviously a terrible report card. You can tell by the frown on his face that it's nothing but D's and F's. And the boy looks up at his father and he says, well, what shall we blame this on, heredity or environment? But the other extreme, the other corruption of memory is when we let our guilt take over everything. And when we let that happen, it leads not to blame, but to that terrible malignancy of the spirit we call shame. I think one of the real advances we've made in human understanding is to distinguish between those two, between guilt and shame. Guilt, as I see it, has to do with feelings about things that we have done or things that we have left undone. But Shame is when we begin to have bad feelings about who we are. John Bradshaw used to call that the hole in the soul. Some of you will remember the story of uh, Bill Beekner's father, who grew up in a highly achieving family in New York City. He went to Princeton himself and then became quite successful professionally. But then the Great Depression hit, and uh, the father wasn't able to keep a job that would pay him enough to carry his family in the ways of affluence that they had been accustomed to. 
he then turned to alcohol as a way of covering up his sense of failure until finally one Saturday morning, in an event that forever shaped Bill's life, his father got up early before everyone else. He looked in on his two little sleeping boys. He went down to the garage, pulled open the door, turned on the ignition of that old Chevrolet, sat down on the running board, and was asphyxiated before anybody in the family could find him. For years, Beekner was asked how his father died, and he would say, well, he died of heart trouble. And he said that was partially true, because he had a heart, and it was troubled. The interesting thing is that about a month after that event, uh, Beekner's mother um, picked up a copy of Gone with the Wind that was sitting in the house. It had come out just that year. Uh, Bill's father was a voracious reader and had been reading it. And on the last page of that novel, she found a penciled note that said, Dear, I love you with all of my heart, but I'm no damn good. Please forgive me. Give my watch to Jamie. Give my stick pin to Frederick. I love you with all my heart. And then he signed his name. Now notice what he said. Not, I have done some bad things. No. His guilt had descended into shame. I am no damn good, he said. Now that's when the memory of guilt has crossed over into the present with a power that it doesn't deserve. And the only way I know to counter that kind of power, whether it be the unbridled blame or the deep-seated shame, is to come home to a reality, to a power that is greater than everything we have done or failed to do. The other week we spoke of God as a refuge and a strength. Today we remind ourselves of an even deeper attribute of God. The psalmist says his steadfast love endures forever. His mercy is from everlasting to everlasting. I love this passage from Jeremiah that we read this morning where the prophet is told to go down to the potter's house and to watch what is happening there. Uh, if you have ever been around somebody who is shaping a pot, you know that it starts out with a lump of clay that has hardly any shape to it at all. And then they put it on the wheel and the wheel starts spinning. And patiently and skillfully, uh, they start to bring some form to that block of clay. And oftentimes, uh, they will have to pick out imperfections and slowly and patiently over hours, sometimes days, what was an absolutely formless piece of clay becomes something absolutely exquisite. God, says Jeremiah, God is more to be understood as a potter and a nurturer than an absolutely demanding perfectionist. The image um, is of one that is at constantly at work with our imperfections to shape us into more and more of what she envisions for us. Maybe we can get a little more closely at that uh, image if we 
put it up next to something that is its antithesis. I was remembering uh, back to the days of the Vietnam War when, of course, the tensions between generations were so bad. And I remember hearing a country song. It turned out it was a letter that was being written from a father to his son who was off at college. And in the letter, the battle hymn of the Republic is playing very patriotically in the background. And in the letter, uh, the father reiterates that he had fought in World War II, that he loves the flag, he loves America. He says to his son, I know that you are having lots of pressure in college to turn against this wonderful country of ours. But then the song comes to a climax when the father says, but I want you to know, son, that if you burn your draft card, I want you to go ahead and burn your birth certificate also. Because as of that moment, you are no longer a son of mine. Friends, if God was like that, we would not be doing any of this today. The great good news is that there is more mercy in God than there is sin in us. And in the end, God cares more about what you have it in you to become than all you have ever been or done. Arthur Gordon grew up in Savannah, Georgia. Uh, he wound up winning a scholarship to Yale University. Um, this was back in the early 1900s. When he graduated from Yale in the early 1930s, he was one of 32 Americans who were given the honor of a Rhodes Scholarship at Oxford. When he finally came back to this country, uh, it was just as the clouds of World War II were beginning to break. And like most of those in his generation, he felt the call to go into the military, served five years in the Air Force. When he got out, he got together with some of his old Yale buddies, and they decided to flesh out a dream that had actually been born in the pubs of New Haven many years earlier. They thought it would be great to create an avant-garde literary journal that would give young fledgling writers a chance to get recognized. They thought that would be a wonderful step. And it turned out that young Gordon became the editor of that journal. It was a wonderful step. He got some of his own writings published. Many of his friends got a real leg up. But it turned out that Arthur was a better poet than a businessman. He made some really foolish business decisions. And after two years, though the journal was given critical acclaim, it crashed thousands of dollars in debt. To make matters worse, his high school sweetheart back in Savannah, whom he had written countless letters to, finally gave up that he was ever coming back. She broke off their engagement and in a few short weeks was actually married to somebody else. Well, Arthur had never experienced that kind of failure before. He'd always lived to the sound of applause. It was more than he could handle. He became depressed. There were mornings where he never even got up to shave. Typical example of what happens when we lose sight of hope. Well, some family members became understandably concerned, and they were instrumental in getting him to go and see an old 
therapist. And so one cold, rainy October afternoon, he got in a taxi and made his way to the office. And in the safety of that space, he was able to look again at the things that he had done that he wished to God he hadn't. At one point, the therapist said to him, you know, your story is not all that different from some others that I have heard in this very space. Would you be willing to listen to some brief excerpts of some other folks who have been here? I have their permission to use this material. And so he agreed. The old therapist put on a recording, and at the beginning is a man's voice. It is clear that as a father, he had done some very unwise things with his boy, and now his young son was suffering terrible emotional wounds, and the father uh, was feeling a real sense of self-loathing. The next voice was that of a woman, and you could tell that she was just getting in touch with the fact that she had played a significant part in the demise of her marriage. Up until that point, she had pretty much exclusively blamed her ex, but now it was coming clear that she too had participated. And she also was filled with a sense of recrimination. The third voice was a highly placed business executive who confessed that he had not adequately researched a project carefully and the company had lost millions of dollars. His own job was now in jeopardy. And so he too, of course, uh, was filled with a kind of self-loathing. When the third interview was finished, the therapist asked, do you sense any common thread in these stories? And the bright young Rhodes Scholar said, well, of course. Each of these people are saying, in effect, if only I had done differently, then the present and the future would be different. He said, you're absolutely right. Now, I want to tell you that I got each of these stuck from where you hear them on this recording. All got back to a place of creative coping. And in each case, the turning point was getting them to substitute two different words from the words you hear most often on this recording. He said, I taught them to say, next time, rather than if only. He said, think about it. If only points to that sector of life that can never be altered, no matter how intensely you feel about it. We simply cannot go back and redo. And so energies that are spent lamenting the past are largely wasted. But next time points to that segment of life that is still out there, that is still fluid and waiting to be formed. And if you can take what you have learned from the past, even the most painful of experiences, and put them in service of next time, then even the worst things can become a catalyst for the best. Well, for the next six months, they worked together. Slowly but surely, that different way of handling the past made its way from his head to his heart. And years later, Arthur Gordon would look back and say that that one thing, that one change had been more of more practical value to him 
than all he had ever learned in New Haven and Oxford put together. This is the essence of forgiveness. To shift the focus and to realize that there is something bigger out there than what we have done or left undone. You and I are in the hands of the potter who cares infinitely more for us um, and what we can become than what we used to be. His hands are patient and they are merciful. And because of that, we can make the shift from if only to next time. Amen.